over there. Y'all give it up for Tyler. Thank you so much, dude. <laughs> Grateful for that. Hey, like they said, my name's Rudy. Uh, I get to lead Salt Company here at UW. I'm really, really glad that you all are here this evening. Um, don't take that for granted, so I'm pretty stoked to get into the text uh, tonight. Like they've all said, we're here tonight. Really grateful for Ingram Hall for letting us be here this evening. We're not here next Thursday. If you come here next Thursday, the hallways will still be warm, but this room will be very empty, right? So do not do that. Um, we are going to be at the Play Circle Theater uh, continuing our series uh, that we're continuing tonight, which is called Three Words. We're looking at four places where Jesus says three words that really deeply change and impact the lives of the people that he speaks to. Next week, actually, Jared, who was just up here, is going to be teaching the text, so I'm really excited for y'all for that. It's gonna be, that's going to be sweet. But, but tonight, we're looking at uh, the three words that Jesus says in John chapter 4. Uh, if you have a Bible, you're, you're already there. If you don't, there's some in the back you can get. If you're still looking for it for some reason, in the blue one, it's page five, 518, the one that we, that we hand out. Um, but before we get there, I can't remember, and someone help me, I can't remember if it was the philosopher Aristotle or the poet Justin Andrew Bieber who said, what do you mean? <laughs> when you nod your head yes, but you, you want to say no, what do you mean? When you ask me to stay, but you want me to go, what do you mean? I'm playing. Okay, but like, like, like those, those words, I, those words, what do you mean, are words that have likely crossed your mind uh, in the last several days since being here on campus, right? You're in a lecture hall and someone says something, you're like, what do you mean, uh, right? Or maybe you remember it from high school where one of your parents, your mom or your dad maybe flipped you the keys to the car and said, enjoy yourself, kid, or whatever that like high school movie thing is, and, and like flip you the keys and they said, have it back around 10 and you're like what does around 10 mean is around 10 955 or 1020 like in one way I'm like early the other way I'm grounded so how does this work out what do you what do you mean right uh, the professor says five to seven pages and you're like what do you mean <laughs> like just give me a word count come on like what do you mean uh, like that boy or girl that man or woman that you're kind of crushing on text you like I really like you and then you're hanging out later that day and they're like you're my best friend and you're like what do you mean <laughs> that's so confusing like what do you mean oh man um, I, I love that. What do you What do you mean? If I can be honest with you, I think that in spaces like this, Christian spaces, sometimes, um, and we're honored that you're that you're here, regardless of kind of where you're coming in at this evening. I think in Christian spaces like this, sometimes we have that thought go through our mind. What do you mean? But we just kind of nod along because it's what everyone else seems like they're doing, right? Like if you're not a Christian and you're in this room and you hear things, and, and it's just like everyone else is kind of like, yeah, and you're like, I have no freaking clue what that means, right? And that's fine. Like we got plenty of room for that because frankly, there's Christians in this room. Who hear stuff and they're like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to nod my head, but I've got no idea like what's going on there, right? And that, that's because like we, we, we've said this before. When we say like you're welcome here, we mean you and all of your questions. So what do you mean is, is welcome here? But we're going to get into, into what do you mean this evening around a, a pretty core tenet of Christianity, like a, a very like central one. And it's this idea of having a relationship with Jesus because you can hear that and you can nod along and say, yeah, I get it. But, but, but if you start to think about it a little bit deeper, you're like, okay, what does that actually mean? Like, what does it actually mean to have, like, a relationship with, with Jesus? And let, me, let, me, let me frame the question a little differently for you note-takers out here. How does Jesus relate to me? 
Like, how does Jesus relate to, to me? And you can insert a bunch of different things into there and maybe be right, but maybe not. So how does Jesus actually, like, relate to me? We, we actually see him answer that question for us this evening by, by, by looking at John chapter 4 and the way that he interacts with the woman at a well. We're going to see at least four ways that Jesus relates to us and reveals how he relates to us by seeing how he relates to her. So we're going to bring out the book. The word doesn't do the work, then the work won't get done. John 4, you heard it. Let's get it. Chapter 4, verse 4. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jo- Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, hold on to that, sat down by the well. It was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to drink water, draw water. Sorry, Jesus said to her, would you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. How does Jesus relate to me? Number one, for the note takers in in the place, and these are all very simple if you're not taking notes. Number one, here's how Jesus relates to you. And I can tell you that because I see it's how he relates to her. Number one, Jesus, Jesus pursues you. I want you to see this just from the jump in the text here that's often glossed over that helps us rightly understand Jesus. Did you note it in verse 6? Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down in the well. I want you to just imagine this. He's in Samaria. It's the near Middle East. It's about noon, so the sun is right up in the middle of the sky, and you and your friends have been walking with Jesus for literally hours. This is the mode of transportation. It's walking at the time. There's no, like, camel Uber ride share to get around with, right? It's just you, sandals, a dirt road, and that near Middle Eastern sun blazing down from the sky. So you get to Sakar, you go to a well, and you're tired, and interestingly, so is Jesus. Jesus is is tired in our text. That might not sit well with you, but I'm pulling this straight from the Bible, right? And I think it's important because it helps us understand from the jump two things about Jesus. First, we see that while Jesus is fully God, he is also fully man. We have an image of the incarnation of Jesus right here. Jesus, God to save us, man to reach us, is tired. And the other thing is this. It's week two of classes. Anyone tired? (laughs) Right? I would see a lot of hands. Anyone tired? Right? Like, like is, is some of you have exams marked on your calendar already that you're already freaking out about, right? Like, like, like some of you haven't been asleep before midnight since August, okay? Like, like so, some of you, like it's just a new rhythm in a new place around new people and it feels exhausting and at some point you've likely felt tired. And I think it's important to just note this. So, so did Jesus. Your experience, your human experience of being tired is not distant from the experience of Jesus even in this text. He knows it because he, he lived it. It's important because it helps us get uh, away from this concept that can, can kind of infiltrate our understanding of relationship with Jesus sometimes, that Jesus is just like this idea or this concept And it's really difficult to imagine having a relationship with an idea or a concept uh, until you start to understand Jesus really was a person. Like, like Jesus was a, a person. Relationship with Jesus is relationship with not a concept, but a person. It's a relationship that involves two people, actually, you and him. And what's interesting is Jesus, like, as we kind of look at this text, it's very clear. Jesus wants to be at this well, at this point, at this place, at this time. He's chosen to be here. And the reason for that is clear as the disciples go away to get food because Jesus will encounter this precious Samaritan woman at the well in the middle of the day. And even in just that sentence, there are at least three reasons culturally for why Jesus should never have related to this woman at all. 
The cultural expectation of Jesus at this point in time, in the first century, would have been that he violently ignored her as if she was not there at all. Let, let, me just, let me just fill you in, right? First, and this is very different than our 21st century Western context, which I think is, is great, but first, you gotta understand she is a woman, and while this is not our experience currently in the West, in the 21st century, if you were to come with me to places in the near Middle East, Middle East where I've spent time, like Dubai and Izmir and Istanbul and, and Cappadocia, you would still experience the tendrils of this reality, of this social norm and expectation that men and women don't interact with one another unless they're married or family. Like that was, is still experienced in parts of the world today and was like the code of conduct in the first century. So, so we see first, this woman comes up and there is a cultural barrier of gender between Jesus and this woman, but it's not the only one. Jesus is also uh, speaking to a woman who is from Samaria. So centuries before this encounter, uh, the kingdom of Israel would have split into a northern and southern kingdom. That northern kingdom was conquered by Babylon. Babylon was conquered by Assyria, and the Israelites were exiled to Assyria. And in exile, these Israelites and Assyrians uh, intermarried and had children who were half Israelite, half Assyrian, that were called and known as Samaritans. And it is very, very difficult to overstate the racial prejudice and racism that's occurring uh, in the culture of this day at this point in this time between Jews and Samaritans. It was social, it was emotional, it was fiscal, wouldn't do business with them, it was spiritual. There were prayers that would be prayed where someone would go to the synagogue and pray, God, I thank you that I was not born a Samaritan. It was deeply felt, deeply ingrained, deeply enculturated, which is why when Jesus speaks to her, she's shocked. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? There's a cultural barrier of kind of expected racism that exists between this woman and Jesus. But it's not the final one. The, the woman is at this well at noon. Uh, we already established that it's hot, right, middle of the day. And this is just not when people came to the well. You came to the well in the morning. You came to the well when it was cool outside. The well was kind of like one of the centers of the city. It was the place where you got to, went, went to to kind of like hear the tea spilled. The well was like Instagram stories. You just clicked through to see like what was going on in people's lives. Like, like that's what happened at the well. The well was the water cooler of its day. It's where you got to know what was happening in that place and in that city. So why would you not go when everyone else was there. You would come during the middle of the day if there was something that was known about you that was so public and so scandalous that you didn't want to experience the shame of being reminded of it every single morning. So it's hot and tedious and you come in the middle of the day when you're sure that no one else will be there. There's a reason that she's there now and not when everyone else is and that is a moral reason. Here's the third barrier, gender, racial, and moral cultural barriers that Jesus has to disregard this woman. There is no reason culturally for Jesus to interact with her at all, and he blows through all three of those. In fact, he speaks to her first. He, he breaks every single one of those barriers that in her mind and in the mind of culture existed between this woman and Jesus, and he moves towards her. The conversation continues in verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who was it asks you from a drink? You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, this woman said, you've got nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. I love this woman. Y'all, she just, like, pushed back on Jesus the whole time. Okay, I, like, I, I, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? 
Jesus answered and said, whoever drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Don't miss this. Jesus continues this conversation with this woman at the well because from the moment that he saw her, he began pursuing her. He began pursuing her out of love. There is every imaginable reason that culturally he shouldn't have. Her gender, her ethnicity, her morality, and Jesus still pursues her. Let me even push it a little bit further. Based on this language, she is looking at Jesus and saying, you're not supposed to be here. She's pushing against him. She's saying, you don't belong this well. She's pushing him away. She's questioning his presence. She's making it clear she doesn't even want him there. Jesus, this is my time to come to the well, to not be around anybody, and you're ruining it. And yet Jesus remains. He continues. He pursues. And this is what Jesus does because it's what God has always been doing. Over and over in the Bible, which is the unified story of God that leads us to Jesus, you see God bless people, they go and do something sinful or dumb, and then they ignore God and push him away, then they go their own way, they get in trouble, and they cry out for help. And where you and I might look at them and say, serves you right, God graciously continues to lovingly pursue them. Jesus is modeling in this moment what God has been doing for all people in all places for all time. He's pursuing them. He treats these barriers that are established in their mind and in their culture like it's light work, pushes past everything that the, in this woman's mind that should have kept Jesus from her, and he chooses to pursue her anyways. It's all company. I've got to let you know, this same thing is absolutely and unequivocally true of us. I don't care what reason you were given or that you give yourself or that you've concocted in your mind that says, this is why Jesus would never relate to me. This is why Jesus would never be in relationship with me. This is why he doesn't want anything to do with me because the same way that Jesus pushes through her cultural barriers in this woman's life is the same way that he pursues each one of us through whatever barriers we think that we've put up to block him away from our lives. To be honest with you, if you needed proof that Jesus is pursuing you, I've got it for you. Are you ready for it? You're in the room. <laughs> You're here. You're listening to the podcast. You're there. This is hitting your ears that Jesus Christ is pursuing you through an Instagram post and through a flyer handed out and through a cup at convocation and then through a friend that invited you to come to Salt Company. It's no mistake that you wandered past the kickoff last week. It's no error that you stumbled across a sign and decided to come in. All of that is part and parcel of Jesus Christ lovingly pursuing you. That text message, him lovingly pursuing you. That DM, him lovingly pursuing you. He pursues through every barrier that we think might keep us from him, just like he did for this woman. So how does Jesus relate to her? He pursues her. How does Jesus relate to us? He pursues us. All right, back to the book. Verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. All right, cool, Jesus. Like, okay. Um, <laughs> so Jesus pursues her, and he continues to pursue her. And now 
Jesus will come to her and say, I'm pursuing you, and I'm offering you what you need to be satisfied. Jesus pursues, and Jesus satisfies. You see, it's here we start to crack into why she's here at the well in the middle of the day at all. We start to see why she wouldn't want to be at the well when anybody else is. She's had five husbands, and we're not sure totally why she isn't married to them anymore. While it's possible, likely even that they may have left her, the text indicates that her present condition is also due to her promiscuity. The man that she's with now is not her husband, and this woman has experienced one of the most under-discussed and deeply felt effects of sin, which is shame. She has experienced a public, broadly known, life-altering degree of shame. The shame that she's experienced has structured the very has um, shifted the very structure of her life. She is inconveniencing her life and inviting the pain of hard work in the sun because however difficult it is to move large jars of water in the heat of the day is nothing in her mind compared to the heat she would catch if she came in the morning to the well from the other women who were there who would shame her. It would be a shame hotter than a dozen suns. So she structures her life so that it might be forgotten, so that it might be hidden. She builds her life so that it won't be out in the open. She even comes to, but it's even as she comes to the well in the middle of the day, each step on that hot sand is a reminder to her of why she's coming in the middle of the day. Her shame. Shame dictates how she does what she does and when she does it. Shame is interesting. It uniquely has the power to pressure us to hide. We hide because we don't want people to see the thing that we're ashamed of. It's like a bruise underneath our skin when people get close to us and start to push on it. The pain is so excruciating that we do everything that we can to keep people away. And while you might not go to a well at noontime, we all have our equivalent of a noontime well visit. We've all got that thing that we do to try to hide that peace and part of our life, and we want it hidden because we want some kind of relief. But in reality, keeping it hidden relieves nothing. The bruise festers, the cancer grows, the shame remains and spreads. And for this woman, the deepest satisfaction in her mind that she could get would be to never have to return to this well ever again. That is the ultimate hiddenness of her shame. She said, then it will finally be fully hidden. And when Jesus offers her this living water, he is saying, I'll take away your sin and your shame. I'll forgive you of your sin, and I will take away your shame. And what she hears is, I never have to come here again. I'll be able to hide my shame even more. So she says, give me the water. Why? So that I don't have to return to this well. Jesus, give me what you got. And if we're him, maybe we're saying, sweet, disciple number 13. Awesome, right? Like, and, 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 and Jesus, however, knows. So he tenderly and gently uncovers what she's been hiding. He, he starts to let her know that he's the one who can satisfy her longing, not by helping her hide her shame even more, but by taking her shame for her sin away. So what, what does she want more than that? She doesn't even know that that's an option for her. And it's, it's interesting. And if we were to think about the things that we long for, it can often come back to a point where we try to protect the things that we feel ashamed of. But sometimes our deep longing for relationships is because it actually protects us from the shame that we feel for being lonely. 
the, the good grades that we kind of sacrifice our bodies for, we, we were going after those. We long for them because they protect us from the shame of bad grades, that we, we look for that good job or that good paycheck because it protects us from the shame of not living up to the potential that we've been told that we have over and over and over again. And hear me, relationships are good. Good grades are good. I hope you all get them, right? Good jobs are good. Good paychecks are good. I hope you guys have success in every single one of those areas. But I have to be honest with you, each of those are very miserable means of trying to hide your shame. So if you were to think of the thing in your life that you're most ashamed of, the thing that makes you feel the most shame that you most want to hide, you would find yourself in a similar position to this woman where Jesus already knows those things about you and he still chooses to pursue you and still offers you this living water and still offers you this same satisfaction of salvation that can quench the thirst of sin and shame. His offer is not to let us and help us hide. It's to heal us and satisfy us more than we could ever possibly imagine. I think of this verse often, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. Where Paul writes, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Verse 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame because he forgives us of our sin and heals the bruise and wound of shame. He is the one who satisfies. We crave relief and Jesus has it and offers it. Jesus offers that satisfaction of living water to her and he offers that satisfaction of living water to us. And now you'd think that offer would be enough, but what happens next is also very, very interesting. Verse 19. So we see Jesus pursues, Jesus satisfies. Verse 19, sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in in the truth. This woman, don't miss this, this woman kind of like head fakes Jesus a little bit. She's like, oh Jesus, you're mowing too close to the flowers, man. You're getting a little too close to that part of my life that I don't want you to touch. You're just a little too close to my, that little cl too close to that thing I want to keep hidden. So she does, she does what we often do in church and she's like, let's talk about theology, right? Like she, she's like, I know you want my life, Jesus, but I'm going to head fake you. How about we just talk about things that are like kind of complex? How about we talk about these things that are a little bit heady? How, how about we like hide our lives? lives behind uh, some, some sort of ideology and theology. Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Well, duh, right? right? She gets into this argument with him, or tries to, about worship. And it seems like Jesus takes the bait, but I think actually uh, he, one, doesn't because it's setting up for what he's about to say. But two, he actually shows us another way that he relates to us. I only want to live here for a moment, but I think that it's important. The argument that she's making about what she believes about worship is formed more by Samaria than it is by Scripture. She is making an argument that you couldn't really find in Scripture because it had been formed more fully by the culture that she was in than by the Christ that she was talking to. This is what Samaritans believed about worship. 
and it's coming, and she's bringing that to Jesus to try, to try to come at him, try to start an argument. Here's something interesting about the relationship with Jesus that this woman experiences. Jesus steps into that and begins to form her. This theology was rooted more in Samaria than in Scripture, and Jesus doesn't brush it off, but he enters in lovingly, restoratively, and kindly to try to reform her understanding of worship. Jesus forms her so that she might not be so shaped by Samaria, but more shaped by the Scripture. A long time ago, I heard a pastor say that everybody's a theologian. Everybody. Every single one of you believes something about God. That makes you a theologian. Even if you don't believe that God exists, that's still a theological position. That's a belief about God. You're still a theologian. It's possible that you have picked up some theological dispositions that have been shaped more by culture or perhaps by campus than by Christ. Or maybe you think that you've got to, here's one, you've got, you think you've got to clean yourself up before you come to Jesus. I need you to know that that is a culturally formed theological conclusion based on the Western exaltation of performance. That thought that you have to get attention from God and to do so you have to perform in a particular way to get his attention, that is more culture than Christ. Uh, Christ's formation of you would look a little bit more like this, that Christ pursues you first. That Christ comes offering living water first. Christ invites us to be satisfied in him and have a relationship with him. To come to God, not because we cleaned ourselves up, but because we came to the realization that we can't. And that we need Jesus Christ so that we might have relationship with God. That's Christ. The other is culture. Relationship with Jesus looks like Christ forming us. The more we learn about him, the more our culturally held beliefs of following Jesus start to be dismantled, and we start to look a little bit more like Jesus than our cultural perspective of Jesus. I like how Oswald Sanders says it. He says this idea of being formed by Jesus Christ is, is this, this, beauty, this beautiful moment, these beautiful moments when we experience Christ's perfections being realized through our personality. That's this formation of Jesus Christ. It's who you would be if he was you for the sake of those who are around you. This is Christ forming us, shaping us. There are two ways that this happens um, that we talk about a lot at Salt Company. One is the Bible. We open it every Thursday. We open it at Docs every Sunday. You'll open it at your connection groups to get into the text. But we don't want you to just try to eat three meals and then make it through a week. So we actually put Bibles on a resource table in the back if you don't have one. We have a guide back there to help you know how to read the Bible and approach to reading the Bible. Shoot, if you come talk to me or anybody you've seen up here or any of our connection group leaders, we'd love to read the Bible with you, right? Because we want to move towards the Bible. It's the unified story of God that leads us to Jesus. So the Bible, as we lean into that and we see who Jesus is, we're formed more into his likeness. But it also is a formation that comes through community. Not just doing that on our own, but actually doing that within the context of a group of people. So we love gathering like this. Right? We, we love gathering on Sundays at Doxa. We love rows, but we also really love circles, a place for you to be able to really not just hide behind theology, but actually bring your life to bear on the text so that Jesus Christ might form you and so you can love and follow Jesus together in a context of community, Bible and community. You're invited into both of those practices. You see, Jesus forms us so that we might embrace a way of life that leads to flourishing and joy, even in the hardness and the pain of life. That's what this woman's being invited into. In her hardness, in her pain, Jesus is saying, I have a way that is better, that is satisfying, that is loving, that is life. He is speaking to this woman who's waiting to worship and hiding her shame and is saying, you don't have to wait to worship. 
and you don't have to hide your shame. You could bring it to me, and I'll heal you. So as we grow in our relationship with Jesus, we learn this all the more. Jesus forms us. So Jesus pursues us. Jesus satisfies us. Jesus, perfor- Jesus forms us. And finally, verse 25. The woman says, I know that the Messiah, or sorry, that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Here we come to our three words. I am he. This woman puts all her cards on the table. She says, you know what, Jesus? I I get that it's cool that you're a prophet. You know all this stuff about me. We can get into it about theology. Like, it's interesting that you're talking to me. All of this is going on. But here's here's my trump card, Jesus. Uh, I'm waiting for the Messiah to come. He's the one who will truly satisfy me. He's the one that will truly pursue me. He's the one who will form my understanding of God. He's the one who will, here it is, save me. This is the fourth and most central reality of a relationship with Jesus Christ. He pursues, he satisfies, he forms, and he saves. He's the Christ. He's the one that she's been waiting for. Relief in the present and in eternity from sin and shame. The experience of the pursuing love of God. A formation of life not marked by midday trips to the well, but by flourishing. And Jesus says to everything that she's been longing for, she says, I I am he. The one who is speaking to you, I am he. Jesus says, I'm the one that you've been waiting for. I will save you. Salt Company, Jesus is the Christ. Christ isn't his last name, it's his title. He's the Christ. He's the one who has come to save us from our sin and from our shame, to form us more into his more beautiful way, to satisfy us and to pursue us and to invite us into a better and fuller way of life in the present and assurance of eternity into the future. And that way that he makes for us is through the gospel. That every single one of us in this room have sinned and are separated from God. But Jesus Christ has done what is necessary for the gap between us and God to be filled, for him to be our way to the Father. He's the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through him. So he comes, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. He comes so that he might live this perfect life that we could never live and die the death on the cross that you and I both deserve for our sin. He gives us his right standing, his perfect standing before God, and he takes our sin and brokenness and separation on himself on the cross. He dies taking that into the grave, taking it away from us, our sin and our shame, taking it away from us, leaves it in the grave, and three days later leaves the tomb emptier than Chick-fil-A on a Sunday, like, like, like folds his laundry, if you read the text, and walks out of the grave victoriously risen. This is the good news of Jesus Christ by his birth, life, death, and resurrection. If we put our trust in what Jesus has done, we too can be saved. And that salvation looks like life now with Jesus and life in eternity with Jesus. And this is the way that he relates to us, that there's no barrier he won't break. There's no longing that he can't satisfy. There's no cultural idea that's better than his way. And there's no sinner that he can't save. And it's summed up in those three words. I am he. And he is the one who is living water. Living water flows from one point to another, pushing and pressing through any barrier that get in its way. 
living water pursues its end, just like Jesus Christ pursues us. Living water quenches thirst for every ounce of sin and shame, every way that we try to hide those parts of our life. Jesus says, you don't have to hide them anymore. I will heal you of them. For, for every way that we are culturally formed, Jesus offers a better way, just in the same way that a rock goes into a water with jagged and sharp edges. And as the water runs over it, it smooths it out over time. Living water will form us and smooth us out and help us to follow and be aligned with the way of Jesus. And ultimately, this living water gives life, life, eternal life. Jesus offers to us freely. It's the living water that pursues. It's the living water that satisfies. It's the living water that forms. It's the living water that saves. So Jesus goes where he doesn't belong so that you and I can find our belonging with God. That on the cross, two of Jesus' last words would be, I thirst. He would thirst so that we might be full of living water and drink deeply of it. He emptied himself on a cross so that we might be filled with life. He drinks the cup of sin and wrath for, for our sins so that we might drink the cup of living water that he offers us and have eternal life. He would be publicly shamed for us and for our sin on a cross so that we who put our trust in him might be eternally free from our sin and shame forever. I who speak to you, I am he. So what's it mean to have a relationship with Jesus? It means that Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, pursues you, satisfies, forms, will save you. So what should your response be? I'm going to land the plane. Verse 27. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? And then leaving her water jar. The woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? So they came out of the town and they made their way to him. There's two responses for every single person in this room tonight. The first response we see in verse 28, when this woman drops her jar. The first response for you tonight may, is that, for you to drop your jar. This jar is symbolic of everything that she had been structuring her life around. This jar is symbolic of her sin and her shame that she had been carrying, that she'd been building her life around, that she'd been forming her life around, that she'd been pursuing, that she this this jar was everything to her. This jar was the reason she was going to the well because she was thirsty. And while she went to the well thirsty, she drops her jar and leaves because she's been filled with a better water, a greater water, a living water. She drops her jar. What she came for, she realized she no longer needed. She came to the well thirsty. Jesus gave her living water. The question for you tonight is quite simply, what about you? Like, what's the jar that you carried in here? Like, what's that thing where you're like, I can't let anyone touch this? And Jesus says, if you give that to me, I'll heal you. I can't let anyone have this. And he says, I can have it. I can hold it. I can handle it. I pursue you. I'll satisfy you. I'll form you. I'll save you. Just come to me and bring your jar. You don't have to come cleaned up. You can come jar in your hands and say, Jesus, I need you to take this from me. Jesus, this is my sin. Jesus, this is my shame. Jesus, I need you. Maybe tonight you'd make that decision for the first time to come to Jesus and say, I want Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and Savior. Repent of my sin, give you my sin, and trust you as my Savior. Or maybe, maybe, maybe that's kind of a bright light at one point in your life of the gospel that's dimmed. 
And you just need to come back to him and say, Jesus, help me to remember. Help me to remember the gospel. Help me to remember the beauty. Help me to remember who you are, to remember that you pursue me, that you love me, that you form me, that you satisfy me, that you save me. Tonight, you can drop the jar. The other thing tonight that you can do, some of you, is for you to tell your people. That woman runs out and says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. That would have been the worst news for her moments later, and it's the best news for her now because the person who told her everything she ever did was the Messiah, was Jesus, was the one who pursued, who satisfied, who formed, and who would save her. So she goes out and she says, this is good news for me, and I need other people to know this good news as well. So she goes and she tells her people. The response for you tonight, whatever that might look like, would be for you to go and to just tell your people, for the people that are around you, that they notice you're like, you're just, you're just a little different, like what's going on in your life right now? What, and for you to be able to say, I, I know Jesus. I know what he's done for me. I, I know how good he's been. I know, I know what he's done for me. You can go and you can actually share that story. If you know enough to believe, you know enough to speak. So you can share that story of Jesus and you can tell your people. Drop the jar and tell your people. What's it mean to relate to Jesus, to the one who says, I am he, is to know that he pursues you, he satisfies you, he forms you, and he saves you. And you can come to him tonight. As you leave, you won't leave alone. You'll leave with him, with this story, with this good news, so you could go and tell your people. For just a moment, I just want to give us a moment of focus and concentration. So just you can close your eyes and bow your heads. I'm not going to ask you to do anything. I'm just going to ask you to consider, what do you need to do tonight? Do you need to drop your jar? There's something you've just been hanging on to, holding on to, making noontime trips to the well. Is that thing you structured your entire life around? You're like, Jesus, you can have everything else, but not that this, this is just, I got to keep this hidden. What if you were to just come with that to Jesus tonight? To come with your sin and say, Jesus, I repent. I want you. I need you. Please, please, please save me. For you to drop your jar. For you to tell your people, maybe I said that and you thought of someone, you're like, oh man, I, I want them to know what I know about Jesus. I want them to have this life that I have with Christ. Pray for that person even this evening, but ask God to give you the opportunity to tell your people. Just as she ran back into her town and told her people that you would go and tell yours. So Jesus, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for this hall on campus just to have a space to get to worship you to hear your word taught. God, help me. Um, help me to tell my people. Help me. Help us to drop the jar. Help us to, to, to remember that you pursue. When we don't feel worthy of pursuit, that you pursue. Help us to remember that you satisfy. Help us to remember that you are the better way, that you form us. God, help us to remember your salvation, that you saved. Jesus, we gra we're grateful for this space. We're grateful for this time. I ask that you would move, even as we sing, God, that, that it would be that in, in these moments of song, that we would just respond to you. We would sing out of a love because you pursue, out of a love because you satisfy, out of an affection because you form. Even as we sing that you'd form us, God, and that, that you would save that you have saved. God, even if you were to save tonight, we would be so grateful and glad. Jesus, it's ultimately in your name that we pray.